Hey, you are listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Seven Mile Road. We are a gospel-centered church just north of Boston, Mass. To learn more about who we are and what we are going for together, just go to sevenmilemelrose.com. Good morning. My name is Michael. I get to work here on staff as director of discipleship, so that means I get to work with basically any team here, making sure that we're healthy and aimed at loving and gospeling all the people that Jesus has given us. So I get to do that today by preaching the word. So I'm very excited to be here, privileged. Okay, how many of you like roller coasters? How many of you at one point in your life used to like roller coasters? Okay, so most of us, I generally like roller coasters when they're over. Um, (laughs) I am scared of heights. So I like the ones that do the flips but don't get very high. The ones that terrify me the most are the ones that take like 40 hours to get to the top. And then you sit there and enjoy the nice view of the amusement park and then they plunge you down to the abyss. And I'm always afraid that the like safety harnesses or the seat belt that thousands of people have worn is going to come off mid-ride and I'm going to jettison out into like a snow cone machine or the tilt-a-whirl or something. That kind of fear that I have is what I feel when I hear this passage. Uh, like, Jesus really wants me to get on this ride and love my enemies and everything's going to be okay. Uh, that makes me feel some anxiety around my own safety of my life. Um, so I don't know about you, I suspect that when you hear this passage about loving your enemies, that you also feel some of the same fear. Like, don't, Jesus, don't you know what these people want to do to me? Don't you know what would happen if I would be nice to them, give them an inch, do good to them, or even, why would I even pray for them? Are you serious? Um, I suspect you feel that tension also. Hopefully you resonate with some of that fear. I think that... Um, Actually, this quote here, if we go to the next slide, resonates with us too. This is by atheist Christopher Hitchens. He says, no, we have to hate our enemies and try to destroy them before they destroy us. Somebody had asked him about Jesus' teaching. He said, that's the responsibility, to be neutral on such a point, especially if you're a father or consider yourself a citizen with duties to his fellow citizens is wicked. Christianity actually disarms those of virtue and leaves them at the mercy of the wicked. So I think if we're honest, we examine our own hearts, our social media habits, the podcasts we choose to listen to, the way we respond to people that are different from us, or the parents who push their kids in front of our kids, that we actually line up more with Hitchens than with Jesus when it comes to our enemies. We would prefer that Jesus said, hate your enemies or slander your enemies, or be passive-aggressive and work against your enemies. Anything but love your enemies, actively choose to benefit their life. So I think some things that we would need to understand when we move into this passage is, why would Jesus command us to do this? What motivation does he give us that we can actually feel good about loving our enemies? What kind of security is he offering us? All right, let's move into the text and find out together. We're in Luke chapter 6. So up to this point, we haven't gotten any extended teaching from Jesus on what a disciple actually does. Like, how is being a disciple any different 
from being a Roman? How is being a disciple of Jesus any different than being a Pharisee? How is being a disciple any different than being just kind of a normal peasant Jew who goes and worships in the temple? Like, what is Jesus saying his community does? How are they different in the way they engage us? And how are, how are we different in the way we engage them, outsiders? Today's passage, Jesus is teaching us how we engage them, those that we consider outsiders. So Jesus opens and he says, but I say to you who hear. So when you hear some, Jesus say that, you also need to consider what he says at the end of this passage in the end of chapter 6 where he says that don't call me Lord if you're not going to build your life on my teaching. Don't call me that. Those who hear are those who hear and obey. So those who hear and obey let Jesus choose what is wise and what is evil. And we build our life on that. Uh, to do the opposite of that would be to choose what we think is good and evil for ourselves and then to build our life on what we think is best. And the result of that is a house that crumbles. Like those condos in Miami. Everything seems fine, and then all of a sudden, it crashes. So Jesus is saying, my disciples, jump onto this ride, and we obey. We hear what Jesus says, and then we build our life on that. So he says, love your enemies. Great. This is the major command here. This is the headline from not Jesus the guru, but Jesus the king who has commands for his people that we obey and come underneath his authority. He says, love your enemies. So how do we do that? This actually, for somebody who's preaching the first time, this passage is hard because I'm telling you to love your enemies, but then also easy because the application is right here. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you and pray for those who abuse you. For those who actively despise you, the ones not in your echo chamber, do good to them. Those who curse you, Jesus wants you to find a way to benefit their life and to actively pray for those who slander you. All right, pull out your phones, please. We're going to do a little application right now. So pull out your phones, whatever notes app that you use. The students are freaking out right now because they're like, you never let us have our phones in student ministry. That's true. Okay, pull out your phones. Whatever notes app you use, if you use Evernote or if you're basic like me and just use notes, it's fine. If you don't have an Apple, I don't know what they call it on non-Apple phones. But Okay, so pull it out and then I just want you to write this down. This week, I am going to actively pray for and actively do something to benefit and then write down one to three people's names who you would consider an enemy. And these would be people, not organizations. People, not ideologies. Specific people. Okay, so write down the people or person that the Holy Spirit is causing to come to your mind right now. We're going to move back into the text, but we'll come back to our phones later, so if you want to have those available. In case that we think there's any wiggle room out of this, uh, out of this application, then Jesus goes even deeper into how we respond to our enemies. To those who strike you on the cheek, 
turn to them the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to the one who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not ask for them back. So this is how Jesus' people ought to respond to those who oppose us, especially those who oppose us because of the gospel. That if they hit us, we don't hit them back. If they take away our stuff, we don't go back after it. If they ask us for money, then we help them. All right, I can already hear all of your objections. They're very loud in my head. Like, doesn't this make us weak? Doesn't this target us as people to be killed or taken advantage of? Why would Jesus possibly ask us to live like this? Okay, I hear your objections. I'm going to put them on the shelf right here, and then I'll take them back down later. But I do want you to note this, is that Jesus gives no exceptions here. He doesn't tell us that there's like safety harnesses or seatbelts. He just says, love your enemies and to do it. He doesn't say, unless they do this or unless they do that. He says to love your enemies. Okay, and then if this is how we're supposed to react to enemies, how are we supposed to act towards them or people in general? He says, as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. When we act in these ways, we are pointing towards a different kingdom, a different way of living that doesn't have at its root this narcissistic competition of me against you, me advancing myself above you at your expense, me getting glory for myself by pushing you underneath of me. We love who, those who hate us and actively work against us because we actually want them to join us. We actually want them in here worshiping with us. We want them to know Jesus and the power of his resurrection. Right, in order to see how radical, and this is already pretty radical, what Jesus is saying, in order to really feel it, we need to deep dive a little bit into the Roman culture to understand how radical Jesus is upending some of the Roman ethics. So the way that this would work in the Roman culture at the time is there's a system called patron-client or benefactor-client relationships. So the way that this would work is Roman culture was very hierarchical, going all the way up to Caesar at the top. And if you had resources, then you would obligate those below you socially by giving them gifts or grace or favors. And then they would be obligated to respond back to you, reciprocally giving you gratitude. And this would happen either like peer-to-peer or from higher to lower. So on the peer-to-peer level, you can see that in... Luke, where Jesus says, don't invite people over who are going to repay you back. Who should you invite over? Goes all the way at the bottom of the social ladder because they can't pay you back. And then who's going to pay you back? God the Father is going to pay you back because he's your real benefactor. And then the other way we see this in the book of Luke is from those of higher status to lower status. And they would give gifts. And those gifts would be anything from representing them in like legal cases to helping them get jobs or helping other people run for office. And sometimes even the wealthiest ones would give public gifts to cities. And then the whole city would then have to publicly respond back in gratitude to this wealthy, great benefactor. So you can see this in the next chapter of Luke, in chapter 7. These elders of the Jews are coming to Jesus on behalf of a Roman centurion, and they are asking him to heal his servant. And they say, he is worthy. So they're responding 
back to their benefactor with honor. They're giving him honor. And they said, because he loves our nation and he has built for us a synagogue. See, the, the benefactor gave the city a gift. And then the residents of that city are obligated to respond back with gratitude and seeking his honor on his behalf. Responding back with favors. So grace results in gratitude. So Jesus says, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. Like this is actually, I think people who would have heard him say that, they're like, actually there's a lot of benefit to me, actually. There's social benefits, kind of security, I'm securing my status, and potentially advancing, or at least making sure that my family's own interests are taken care of. But Jesus is saying, what benefit is that to you? The, the word there is the same word that we translate grace. It's this Roman kind of technical term. And then Jesus says, if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. So just like the elders of the Jews who were doing good for this Roman centurion, they were doing it because they were socially obligated to do it. So they are obligated by the wealth and the power of this person who has given them a gift. And Jesus is saying that there's nothing really commendable about participating in this system. You're doing it because you're obligated to do so. Then go to the next one. It says, if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit? It's the same word here that it was translated benefit. What credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. Jesus is attacking like the status quo here. This is how people's lives are operated and function. And the the rich and the wealthy keep the poor dependent upon them, obligated by the system to actually the poor have to seek the favor and the honor and advance the interests of the wealthy through the system. And Jesus is undercutting it. He's saying that this is how the world works and there's nothing commendable about loving someone, doing good to them, lending to them, when you know it's going to come back to you. And we might not live under the Roman system of patron ethics, but we still do some of the same stuff. We still act like this. But just in case that we thought that Jesus didn't mean love your enemies, he actually says it again. He says, but love your enemies, do good to them, lend, expecting nothing in return. Right, and here's our motivation. So don't miss this. Here is our motivation for loving our enemies. Your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. All right, so motivation number one. Your reward will be, will be great. God is going to be the one who rewards us. And when we choose to follow Jesus and love our enemies, then we have the only benefactor who matters. God, the creator, and the one who gives all things to all people. So when we give generously with no strings attached, God is the one who will bless us. When we love those who harm us, or slander us, or abuse us, God is the one who honors us for honoring him. So the first motivation for loving our enemies is that God is actually going to be the one who rewards us, which does mean that we have to believe that God exists and he rewards those who seek him, as Hebrews says. Then our second motivation here is that you will be sons of the Most High. When we love our enemies, we demonstrate publicly that our faith has legs, that it has works as James says. 
that we belong to God, that we are his sons and we act like we belong to his family. This is what God does and this is how we act. So if you want to know, like, how am I doing in gospel living, look into how you treat your enemies. It will reveal whether or not we line up more with Christopher Hitchens or with Jesus. So speaking of Hitchens, he does bring up an interesting point of how is it that loving your enemies isn't wicked? Because that's, that's his claim, is that Jesus telling us to love our enemies is wicked. And we do need to address that. Um, as Christians, we believe God exists and that he has revealed himself in his word and in the world. And that through those things that we come to understand things about God, things about ourselves, things about the purpose of the world, the story of the world and the created order. And that God reveals to us and he is the source of our existence. He is a source of our purpose. He is a source of beauty, of truth of wisdom, of justice, of law, of the scriptures, and he is the source of ethics. That ethics flow from the independent creator to the dependent creatures. So for an atheist, God isn't needed to derive virtue. God isn't needed to derive wisdom or truth or beauty. But the reality is that atheists are living parasitically off of the values given by an independent God who has revealed them to us. So God determines what is good and evil. God determines what is just and unjust. God determines what is beautiful and what is ugly. God determines what is merciful and what is cruel. God determines what is wicked and what is righteous. So the grounds of our loving our enemies is the fact that God is kind. He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. The grounds of our loving our enemies is the nature and character of God himself. So to be godly is to think, to live, and to act like God himself, to be consistent with his own character. God is kind. If you read through the Psalms, this is a constant theme in the Psalms. God is kind. He is merciful. He's compassionate to people. So how is it that we know this? Well, just breathe. That's his. Move your body. That's his. Who gave you that heartbeat that is still going? There's so little of our bodies that we actually have control over. How about the mind that you have to pursue the field that you are working in? Who gave you the parents that you have? Who opened up the housing situation for you? Who created the beautiful nature outside that we ignore as we go to our jobs? God is kind to us. And God does good to us. God blesses us. He actively benefits us. He lends us his things. God is kind. And God does all this for us while we mainly remain ungrateful. So ungrateful here is also a technical term in the Roman culture for the act of someone receiving a gift from a benefactor and then actively choosing not to reciprocate back with gratitude. That is what it means to be ungrateful. The fact that God is kind is a microcosm of the gospel. God is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. While we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. So why is it that we love our enemies then? We love our enemies because we know God exists and he is our father. 
He has taken care of us. He takes care of us. And he will take care of us. This is who he is. He is kind, merciful, and compassionate to us. And the overarching theme of our life should be gratitude-driven obedience. We live in response to God, our Father. He's made us part of our family. Now we get to act like him. So Jesus ends and he says, be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. So this is one of the things that I found interesting as I was studying this passage, is that it's mercy that drives our love of our enemies. It's not love that drives our love of our enemies. It's mercy that drives our love of our enemies. It's coming to see that those opposing us need the light of Christ that we have also received by God's grace. And so we believe that God actually might use our loving our enemies to draw them to himself. So our mercy drives loving our enemies. So if we belong to Jesus, then we do the same thing. And we know that Jesus actually shows us how to love our enemies throughout the whole book. He tells the truth, and he doesn't shrink back from opposition. But he also was wrongly accused, mocked, slandered, struck on the face. His garment and his tunic were stolen. He was murdered. He did not resist those who opposed him, but he prayed for them as he was dying for them. He took in a deficit to his own body to benefit his enemies. So the good news for us is that he didn't just die. God the Father did not abandon him, but he resurrected him. He made him king. He gave him authority over heaven and earth. This is why we can give ourselves to love our enemies and trust that God is going to protect us as we do so because he's already demonstrated that he's protected Jesus and he is going to take over the world through his church by Jesus ruling. So what is our application then? How do we do this? Okay, pull your phones back out. And above that sentence, we'll write this. Since God is my father, I'm going to obey Jesus by mercifully loving my enemies. So that's our big idea here. And because that's true, this week I'm going to actively pray for and actively do something to benefit. Boom, boom, boom. All right, that's it. That's your application. And this is difficult because as Hitchens showed us, we naturally want to do the exact opposite. All right, when you get on a roller coaster, there's often like this thing over here that says like, if you're this tall, don't get on, or if you're photosensitive or prone to seizures or a list of all this stuff. Okay, when uh, I was thinking about loving your enemies, I thought of two extreme reactions. So one reaction would be people who are prone not to get into conflict. So we think that Jesus actually says, don't make enemies. Jesus doesn't say don't make enemies. Actually, the command to love your enemies presupposes that the way that you live is going to create enemies. So that is one extreme. Jesus and his disciples made enemies because the gospel is offensive. It's the aroma of death to those who resist Jesus as king. Jesus didn't say don't make enemies. He said love your enemies. Okay, then over here on the other extreme are those of us who, let's say, are gold medal enemy makers or quarrelsome. Consider this, that love is kind, love is patient, love doesn't envy or boast, and love is not arrogant or rude. 
So some of us only make enemies, and we need to consider that we're actually hiding behind contending for truth our sinful patterns of being arrogant and rude. So what we might need to do is actually apologize and reconcile with some people and then add mercy into our contending for truth. All right, those are some extremes that I wanted to get out there. Uh, since God is our Father, this week let's actively obey Jesus by mercifully loving our enemies. So imagine what that could look like in our communities. If we actually began to love those who oppose us, we can fill our neighborhoods with the aroma of Christ, who boldly spoke the truth, and he went to the cross and he died for his enemies. And he was resurrected. He's now seated at God's right hand. And he is discipling the nations through the church, bringing all of his enemies under his feet. That was the most powerful world-shaping event in history, and it happened because Jesus loved his enemies. Imagine what could happen if we obey Jesus together and also love our enemies and let him love them through us. So since God is our Father, let's obey Jesus by mercifully loving our enemies this week. All right, let's pray. Jesus, you are king. You command us to love our enemies. And if you don't give us your spirit and press your mercy on us, we are prone to forget and hate our enemies instead. Help us to obey. And please use our loving our enemies to draw people into your church. Thank you, Father, for your mercy to us. Thank you for your kindness. Shape us in the gospel ways as we respond to you this week. Amen.